Before I welcome on yet another amazing guest of the Live Inspired podcast, I wanted to extend my most sincere thank you to each and every one of you for listening in your car, on the bus, while you're training for your next 5K, however you're listening. You, my friends, are a critically important and valued member of our Live Inspired community. If you ever want to get in touch with me, I'm always available on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And you can always send me an email anytime at your convenience to podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. Again, that email, podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. So let's dive into today's episode. You are going to love it. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired, the podcast with John O'Leary. Today, we have an incredibly emotional, I think it's an incredibly important, it's an incredibly timely conversation to have with you. We're going to be talking with a woman named Rebecca Bender about her life story. She grew up in a very seemingly ordinary family, and at age 19, her life takes a wild, radical turn for the worse. She is human trafficked. She becomes part of this illicit sex trade that quietly is all around us. It's a topic that we seldom talk about. It's a topic we probably seldom think about. And yet it's one I think, my friends, we need to be thinking about. We need to be moving on. We need to be redeeming as a community now. Rebecca is going to share a bit of her story. She's going to share a little bit of what she's learned along the way. She's going to share a bit of what we can do to make our lives better, how we can step into resiliency, how we can choose not to be defined by what we've been through in the past, but instead can be made whole. We can be loved, we can be seen, and we can become better versions of ourselves going forward. This is going to be an emotional conversation, as you can hear from my voice on the front side. We are shooting from the heart on this one, but it's one after reading her book that I was moved enough to realize, man, we we gotta talk about this, we gotta share this, and we gotta realize that this is too common and too important a topic not to bring into the light. So during this conversation, I would encourage you right now to buckle up. It's a wild one. We're gonna be uh, needing that seatbelt. We're gonna be needing an open mind. It is so easy in life to judge. I know myself, but I also know a lot of us listening right now. It's so easy in life to judge. I am begging you right now. In fact, I'm challenging you right now. Don't judge this book by its cover. I want you to listen to this one all the way through, listen to how this one ends, and listen to how it's going to influence what you do after this podcast ends. It's an inspirational story. You will laugh, you will cry, you will learn, you will be made better through the story of a woman named Rebecca Bender. Rebecca Bender, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you and I were talking offline when we were not yet recording about a bit of your story. Rebecca, it's one of the most intimate, emotional, tragic, and somehow redemptive, beautifully redemptive stories 
I've ever read, I've ever heard. We're going to get into it as we go through our time together today. But for those who do not yet know about Rebecca Bender, tell us about you personally, in brief, and a little bit about what you're doing professionally today. Yeah, well, um, today I'm married. We have four beautiful daughters. Uh, We just celebrated 10 years of marriage. I live in the Pacific Northwest, um, just finished my master's degree in biblical studies from Bethel Seminary, St. Paul. And so now I I preach and um, write books, and hopefully this is the first of of more to come um, that we can really do deep dives uh, into biblical studies, hence my degree. So that's kind of what I do today. Well, for what you're doing today and from where you came from, it's one of the farthest left to right, like one pull over there, one pull over here, journeys that I've ever encountered. I cannot wait to walk through it with you, listen to it as you share it, and unpack it with our audience today. So let's start way back in the Pacific Northwest. Talk about your mom and dad growing up. Yeah, I grew up, I had a great childhood growing up. I was an only child, but we lived in a very small uh, rural lumber town in Oregon, uh, about 3,000 people in the whole town. My Dad worked at the local lumber mill, my, my grandpa, my uncles, every, everyone I knew, that's kind of what the town was centered on. And as a child, I can remember just growing up riding bikes, skipping rocks, um, feeding cows in the morning, you know, taking a salt shaker out to the garden and picking tomatoes off the vine, just kind of a normal small town farm kid, you know, mm-hmm. my parents, uh, were not faith people of faith. My grandma, I had a praying grandma. Thank God for those praying grandmas. I think we all have one. I hope we all do. Um, Everybody's got a praying grandma. It's just kind of like you're born into a life with a praying grandma. We all got one of those. (laughs) Well, my grandma took me to church um, whenever I would visit with her, but my parents themselves weren't weren't churchgoers. They weren't really people of faith. And um, we grew up kind of partying a lot. My parents would take us to friends' houses and they'd, you know, party on the weekends and we'd be, us kids would be in the back playing Atari or Nintendo, you know, just kind of um, normal Mm -hmm. life. But my parents divorced when I was nine and it was a really ugly divorce. Uh, My dad had started drinking too much and became an alcoholic. And my mom ended up moving right in with another um, guy who was abusive to her. And so from about nine to 13, which are pretty formative years, I lived just feeling really unimportant and unwanted and unseen. Um, both, both my parents were dealing with their own demons, trying to put their own lives together. And my mom thankfully left that abusive relationship, but it did create some desensitization in my life that, you know, this is just how adults fight kind of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and for my dad, he you know, was dealing with addiction and alcoholism. And so as a little girl trying to show up for parent visitation, sometimes he wouldn't make it. Sometimes we'd just drive to the bar and he'd leave me out in the car while he went inside. And I'd walk to the payphone and use the 1-800-COLLECT commercial. I can remember to call my mom as a little girl. So even though my life kind of turned back around at 13, my mom got a great job, moved to a bigger city. Um, I was always a fun, kind of active, engaged kid, but there were still those moments um, that really left an impact on me as a young person that would come back kind of later. I think we all do that. Even kids from good homes, we have vulnerabilities that exist, you know? And 
frequently it, it's in the ones that you may not expect it. I, you know, you are a beautiful lady. You're a varsity athlete. You're incredibly bright. You graduate a year early. And yet that little girl aged nine to 13 who felt, as you said, unwanted, unseen, and unloved remains part of who you were even at 17, graduating right. high school and moving on in life. Exactly. I think no one ever put me in an at-risk youth category because as I moved into high school, I was, you know, I played varsity sports. I was a cheerleader. I was the varsity goalie for the girls' soccer team. We went really far every year. Mm -hmm. I was accepted into Oregon State University, graduated as a junior. I had enough credits, real involved in sports and school. And I kind of just put that on as it didn't matter that I had those vulnerabilities. I was um, wanted and engaged today in, in high school. So when I got pregnant by my boyfriend at 17, that was a real hit uh, for me and my family to give up my dorm room at the university, uh, attend community college instead, stay in my small town. And the ambitious kind of girl who really loved and sought adventure, I remember feeling these moments of, I can't let this be the rest of my life. I can't become a teen mom in this small town while all my friends kind of go off right. to fulfill their dreams. And that was a real hard hit for me. Well, you begin to find an area where you think you're finding someone who loves you, someone who sees you, someone who wants you in the form of a boyfriend named Brian. Talk about Brian. What was it about Brian that you fell in love with? Brian was funny and charming, and he seemed to have all these really big dreams of of doing more with his life. And I think because of all of my past leading up to that moment, I really got swept up in that um, feeling of adventure and excitement and that there was more to life than just this. And, you know, I'm single teen mom trying to put myself through community college. It's, that's, those are not easy. It's, you know, you're living in poverty. Your, um, your schedule is always busy. There's, there's always something that you have to do and yet can't do. And, and so it's just a lot, it's a lot on your shoulders. And so Brian seemed to have all the answers. And after six months of dating me, I thought I had met the one. I thought this was going to be the family that broken nine-year-old me always mm -hmm. really wanted and that I never wanted for my daughter. You know, I remember having moments of feeling, you know, when my daughter was born thinking she's never going to have the childhood I had. Mm. And, and so the adventure and the provision um, and the ambition that Brian sold me was more alluring probably than it would be for others because of, of those vulnerabilities I had walking in. Were there any friends, parents, people who knew you that said, gosh, I, I don't know about this guy? And any, anybody raised red flags about him? Not in the moment. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, And obviously now today, my mom and other people would say something was off, but we thought he maybe was a drug dealer. I, I think no small town family immediately thinks human trafficking. Right. Most people, that's not even a, a card in the deck. It's not even an option. It's, it's something's going on, but no one can quite put their finger on it because everyone envisions human trafficking as kidnapped children in foreign countries, mm. victims included, you know, survivors included. We American girls, we grow up in the same country as everyone else. So we're watching the same movies. We're seeing, we have the same stereotypes that every listener has. 
And so when our situation isn't aligning with that, those stereotypes, we don't ask for help. We think, well, this, we must not be being trafficked. I'm, I'm not being kidnapped right now. Right. Well, you are about to uh, be kidnapped. You don't even recognize that at this point, but you make the move with your boyfriend, Brian, to Las Vegas. Share what happens next. Yeah, he told me that his job was relocating him. And I thought, you know, every every good woman follows her man kind of thought pattern of obviously young me. You know, we all think not always the right way at 19 mm-hmm. and when you're in love. And and so I, I said, no, I want to go. I want to come. And when we got there, things drastically changed. It was not... Um, the loving relationship that I had been sold. Um, it was a complete con, a complete relationship built off fraud and lies. And I learned really quickly that Brian didn't actually care about making a family for me and my daughter, that he was feeding me um, exactly what I wanted to hear in order to get me to Vegas, seclude me, isolate me from my connections, from my network, from my my sources of um, safety. So it was all it was all a trick. A trick in order that what happens next? How, what what happens for you for him in your relationship and in your and uh, your journey going forward? He ended up taking me to an escort service in Las Vegas, and he told me that I needed to go in and sign up. That I had used up all the money um, for his company in order to help me move and that if I would make the money back, then, you know, things would go back to normal. And at first I was thinking, you know, escort, that sounds like prostitution. That's, you know, that's not what I'm in. That's not what I'm into. And he slapped me across the face and he said, you're going to make my money back. And I can remember having this moment of, you know, like fear, obviously, and, and just the emotional, um, low of being hit for the first time by someone that you love. Mm. And what I can only, uh, I want to say, imagine that women in domestic violence go through is those first moments of, I thought you loved me. And then I had this stark reality of, I don't know where my baby is. I just arrived yesterday. I don't know my address by heart. And I thought if he told me that it would not be prostitution, it would just be dancing in big suites and big parties in Las Vegas. And this is just how it works to book dancers to rooms. And, and part of me, although I had some trepidation, part of me also really wanted to believe him. I wanted to trust him. I wanted to believe that things would go back to normal if I just danced in some rooms one night and, and got the money back and then we could go back to, to moving on with our lives. So part of it was naivety. Part of it is right. Hope breeds eternal misery. Right. Um, it's hard. I think when you're in the moment in this crossroads of these really difficult life-changing decisions, everyone thinks, well, I would have done this. Well, I would have done that. And, and you forget that this is a 19-year-old girl who's in love, who's a single mom, who's a baby at home at an address she doesn't know. And she really wants to believe her boyfriend. And what do you do? In this one blink of an eye moment, you have to make a decision. And I decided to comply out of fear. You comply. And, you know, in the book, you go through details and stories that break my heart. And anyone 
<laughs> with an iota of compassion would be stirred in reading what you put out there. When did you realize that this was more than going to somebody's um, suite in Vegas and dancing? That 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 you had been, you'd been completely, completely, radically betrayed by your boyfriend. The first, the first night and the first time. And you know, now that we work so much with law enforcement and prosecutors and FBI and Homeland Security, and we do a ton of work with you know vice cops and vice schools, and um, really proud of the work we do today. But one thing I've learned over the last, you know over 10 years in this field is traffickers will say, we only have to get the girl to do it once. The first time, that's it. Once you turn her out, it's, it's downhill from there. It's easy from there. And so most traffickers are trying to just turn the girl out the first time. That's, the, that's what they're leading up to. And my situation is no different. Um, tactics that traffickers employ on their victims are, are universal, unfortunately. And, and so I wish I could say, my situation was unique and my boyfriend loved me and it was just this. And you think that. You think your situation's different the whole time until you meet other girls just like you and you realize my situation wasn't different. This is this is what trafficking looks like in a first world developed country today. Because people handcuffed to radiators with duct tape on their mouth, young young people, that's not selling, right? Sex sells in our country. That doesn't sell. People are creeped out by that. They don't are not comfortable with that. What sells is a girl acting like she wants to be there with a smile slapped on her face. And traffickers know that. And so they're using other tactics than um, full-blown handcuffs and chains. You know, they're using manipulation and coercion and threats to keep their product sellable. That's, that's the point. Do you remember so, coming home that, that first night? I'm assuming your daughter's there, your boyfriend Brian's there. And do you remember walking through the door and what you saw, what you felt, how, how you, what was going on in your mind and heart? You know, I wish I could remember that first night. Trauma does that to the brain. It, it starts um, pockets of memories, right, kind of get hidden just because of parasymptomatic mode within neurology and trauma. It's such a fascinating topic. And, and as you learn more about it, you realize that that's, that's why people don't remember traumatic memories front to back. Um, and oftentimes why law enforcement can think people who have been through a traumatic incident are lying because they don't always remember things in order. And that's what trauma does. It kind of, an incident comes in and it blows um, your memories like post-its all over the place and you have to try to put them back together and they don't always get back in the right order. I remember being at the first time that I was turned out. I remember my quote unquote boyfriend, I remember Brian taking me to a townhouse and I remember going inside and beginning to do a dance. I remember the guy looking at me like, what are you doing? And before I knew it, I, I, I kind of froze and I thought, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Do I run out? Is he going to get mad? Is he going to lock me in the house? You know, I had like all of these what ifs running through my brain really, really quickly. And then all of a sudden he was done. And I thought, I don't have, like, I don't have to figure it out now. Um, and so I just left. Mm. And I, I remember getting in the car and Brian saying, how much did we make? Mm. Everything was we. Everything was about we. How much did we make? And I pulled out this wad of money. It's 300 and something dollars. And, and, and he took it out of my hand and he said, oh, don't worry. You'll do better next time. You didn't have sex for this, right? And I, that was the moment when it hit me. Like, what have I just got 
myself into. What have I just done? I, I'm a good kid from a good home. Like, how did I get here? How did I get this moment of this crossroads that I couldn't figure out how to navigate? And I'm in way over my head. And I can remember that moment just starting to cry mm. and thinking, how did I, how do I get out of this? Um, and I thought, you know, things would go back to normal soon because I was making the money back, the move money. But that was not the case. So, so the question I'm thinking, and I would imagine all of our listeners are thinking is, why did you not go home, wait for the boyfriend, in quotes, to fall asleep, grab your baby, and grab the next Greyhound out of Dodge? I, I You know, I think it's the same reason that most women in domestic violence don't do that every single time that they're hit, right? It's, we, we tend to have empathy because we all understand domestic violence a bit more because we've talked about it longer. We've, you know, domestic violence, the movement to help end violence against women has been around a really long time. And, and so thankfully they've paved the road in helping people better understand that power and control wheel where, you know, there's the honeymoon phase and then someone does something bad and then they're remorseful and things get better and they're better for a while and then they snap again. And it's this, this cycle of abuse and trafficking is exactly the same. I like to say it's this cocktail of like domestic violence mixed with kind of cult-like behavior mixed with prostitution. And it's, it's mixed up in this, you know, concoction we call domestic human trafficking. And so I had similar feelings. You know, I, I was deeply in love with this guy. I thought he was the one. I thought my, I was finally going to have this family for my daughter. And I didn't want to lose that dream so quickly. I thought it's going to get better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to get better tomorrow. And then he was nice the next day and, and he didn't make me do anything the next day. And, you know, and so you're living in this same power and control wheel mm. until things change. And then you start realizing this isn't tomorrow isn't coming. Is it, you know, the, the, the move money has been returned and this isn't stopping. And that's when I did start trying to run. You share various stories from the six years or so you spent uh, working. Uh, you call it the game. I guess that's what, what it's referred to, the, the, the game. Uh, was there a moment looking back on those six miserable years that was like the low point when you recognized, my gosh, like I'm, I'm hanging on by a thread? I, I mean, absolutely. I had several. I, I think in the nearly six years that I was trafficked through the game, um, I had three different traffickers. So it was like traded and sold between different trafficking or organized crime families. Um, you end up, you know, making friends with other girls that are in the same home being trafficked with you. And so there's these deep rooted bonds, um, much like soldiers at war mm. when you're literally living daily in fear, if you're going to make it out or not, um, unfortunately you bond, I say fortunately and unfortunately, right. You bond with the other people that are there in the foxhole with you that have your back, that are fighting with you, that are um, bringing you, you know, little nuggets of hope, so to speak. And, and so you form these bonds. And so then it becomes this very nuanced, complex um, feeling of like you're living in a cult and you're not even realized that you're, you don't realize that you're so brainwashed while Mm. you're in the midst of it. 
And so I had moments of running, moments of running back, um, similar cycles we see in any person who tries to leave a high control group. You know, we think, well, why did everyone drink the Kool-Aid in Waco? Why did, yeah. why do people drop bombs to themselves? It, brainwashing is very real. As an 80s kid, I was, I grew up being taught stranger danger. I was not taught how to recognize when you're in a group of people that are suddenly replacing your ideologies with a new set and, and doing manipulated thought out plans to actually brainwash another human being. Traffickers have, have articles and books and blogs out there on how to use Maslow's hierarchy of Mm. need to traffic young women. I mean, this is, this is deliberate. It's thought out. It's, um, there's blogs where forums where traffickers are giving each other tips that you can find online, um, books that they've self-published through Amazon. I- Amazon thankfully removes them when they've noticed, and but sometimes that takes a little while. And um, so this isn't this is calculated. This isn't accidental. This isn't oh she just got caught up in. This is a very strategic plan devised by bad guys. Because anywhere there's an opportunity to make money, corruption will follow. And our country is no different. There's prescription drugs. People, you know, people use that. They find systems to work that. It's everything. And if we think that sex for sale in America is an opportunity to make money in our country, <laughs> we're being very naive. Were there moments, as you look back on it, of little bits of grace? When someone showed up, someone did something, someone offered a kindness to you when you maybe didn't even offer it yet to yourself? So many. I mean, I, I tried to paint a fairly even spread in the book of times when buyers, um, men who'd bought me were, you know, bad. They did, they did bad things. And, and so you just never feel like you're ever safe. You can't feel like you can't trust anyone ever. Um, and similar with cops, I shared a couple stories when, when cops are not helpful. Right. Um, they're quite the opposite. But I also tried to share other moments to show that um, humanity is all different, all different spectrums. And there were moments of, of normalcy where I could see glimmers of hope and being treated like a human uh, by both um, men who ended up, you know, trying to help and cops who showed glimmers of, of decency and to say, you can't end up like this. You can't end up um, strangled to death, thrown out in a hallway, right? In a motel. Um, you know, I share a story about the, where the cop grabs me by the arm and says, "I have a girl upstairs. I can't tell her parents who she is because she has no ID. Do you want to end up like this?" And he said, "Get out. I don't. I don't mean get out of this hotel. Like get out of this city. Get out of this life." And that really stuck with me. I wish I knew who that cop was to this day. I, I'd tell him how much it impacted mm. me. Because girls in prostitution are their targets to serial killers, serial rapists. I mean, some of the most horrible things happen to women who are trapped in prostitution. And yet God had um, a plan to protect um, me through these moments. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be alive when I know that there are other people that are not as fortunate. Let's talk about that plan and how you began pivoting from six years of captivity, of abuse, of forced prostitution into the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of redemption. Um, it's, a, it's such a long story to, to kind of begin moving you away from Las Vegas and Dallas, but 
what was the turning point for you? I think for me, there was this, you know, moments of chipping away at the hardness, chipping away at the brainwash um, that God had begun to do until this one kind of breaking moment that caused me to grab my daughter and, and run again. You know, I'd had multiple people mm-hmm. say, why don't you just run? My answer is I did. Why do you think I'm standing here? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you know, but why didn't I run sooner? I had multiple attempted escapes and not all of them worked. I learned post 9-11, you cannot buy a plane ticket with cash. Well, most people don't know that. I got all the way to the airport and if trafficker doesn't leave you a debit card, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- these moments of feeling trapped, of feeling... Um, what to do better with every attempted escape that didn't go well. Um, and so for me, there was one breaking moment that it, it did work. And I was able to grab my baby and run. And choosing technically homelessness is, is some of the hardest decisions people make um, when you're living, albeit in captivity and, and horrific trauma, you at least know the power bill is going to be paid. There's going to be food there for you. Um, you know, your kid is going to have a birthday party, little things that make you feel somewhat normal, but to grab it all and run and start over with nothing, not a, not a fork, not a pillow, not a dollar, um, is so, so scary. And to choose that, to actively choose, I am going to start homeless and build something else is a really, really hard switch for your brain to make. (laughs) But I knew I couldn't live in the, in the, trauma and the abuse any longer. And and more than anything, I couldn't subject my daughter to it another day because I ended up being the very nine-year-old. I ended up doing to my daughter the very thing that I felt done to me, where I I had the moment of my daughter will never experience this. And yet here I was having this realization that I was actually exposing her to worse. And so I ran and you know, it was hard. I slept on couches. I got on food stamps. I got on government housing. I, I worked poverty, you know, level job, just minimum wage job living in poverty, trying to make ends meet. I took public buses. I walked places and it sucked, man. Like it sucked. And I can remember getting kind of depressed and, and crying out to God and saying, is this what you saved me for? Mm. Like this sucks too. I don't want this either. I, I don't want that, but I don't want this either. Like, is there another option? And I remember God saying to me, if you gave me this, if you give me the same amount of time that you gave the enemy, I will never be outdone. And I had this moment of God cannot undo in 30 days Hmm. what six years of trauma has built. And so I was all in like, all right, I'm going to give this new (laughs) life six years. That's right. The clock is running. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to dig my heels in and come what may, I'm not going to leave this time. I'm not going to go back. I'm going to, I'm going to approach life saying, I have lived through the fire. I smell like smoke and that's okay. I'm not going to feel bad for smelling like smoke, but I don't have to stay there. Mm. I can work at getting the residual effects off of me and I can work at creating new character and new habits. And and so I worked really hard, and things started getting better, slowly but surely. Rebecca, I want to talk about that for a moment. You spent six years working very hard as an escort, six years of going through the fire, smelling like smoke, 
and believing that you are nobody. You, you are less than nobody. You are useless. You turned to drugs. You had suicidal thoughts. You had uh, ideation around this. You wanted to take your own life. Totally a hopeless situation. And now you're pivoting. What would you say to those of us listening right now who either are the ones or they love the ones who are in that rut of life themselves? They are in an abusive situation. They are beat down by life. They feel as if there's no reason for hope. Well, what would you say to those of us who who either smell like smoke or we are being burned right now today? Mm-hmm. I would say there is nothing that you've been through that can't be undone and redone. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I would say the power of our thought life is so crucial. I had to start speaking things out loud to myself over and over and over again so that I would force my brain not to think on the bad, hopeless thoughts. You know, it's after, right after I got married, it was hard for me to trust people, my, my poor husband, right? And, and I can remember driving and every day out loud as I would drive from home to work saying over and over and over again, my husband loves me and he's on my team. My husband loves me and he's on my team. My husband loves me and he's on my team. And I would just say that over and over. There's nothing that you have been through or have done that can't be. Redemption is available for everyone. Mm. You, your life can, can get turned around. We see it. Every, everyone starts somewhere. Start today. Know that that person you used to be does not have to be who you go into your future with. And everyone has made mistakes that they regret. Everyone has said something or done something in their life that they regret, especially those of us, um, especially when we're in our, in our early te- late teens, early 20s. We all make, what 20-year-old you know has not made a bad decision, right? And so I think having grace for not only yourself, but also each other. Right. It doesn't have to be who you are anymore. You can be something better than this. And finding that gold um, in others and allowing people to pull it out in you. You know, I was used for one thing for six years. Mm. I didn't know that I was smart or funny or a good cook or um, a good writer. I didn't know any of those things about myself. And it took people seeing the gold in me and calling it out. And for me to say, maybe I could, Mm. maybe I could, maybe I could write, maybe I could go to school. I don't know. Let me give it a shot. I want to talk about willing to step out. I want to talk about Matt. You know, there's so many heroes in your story. You, you are one. I don't think you've ever referred to yourself as such. I don't think you would re, uh, happily accept that praise right now, but it is true. You are one of the heroes within the story. Certainly God is one of the heroes within in your story. And Brother Matt, this great guy, is one of the stories uh, heroes within your story. Matt sees you, I think back in February 2009. When he saw you, did he know anything at all about your past? I don't think so. No, I mean, not nearly to the extent that he knows now. On our first date, I told him um, not every detail. I mean, you know, you can only get out Jeez. so much during a date. But um, I told him God has called me to talk about my, to tell my testimony. Um, and I was trafficked for nearly six years. And, and I think we hear the word trafficked and we all have a heart for that. But when you boil that down, I was, for, I was forced to be a prostitute for nearly six years. Like that's, that's hard for a man to swallow and to, and to think about his wife. And so I wanted him to know on our first date that this is my past and I'm called to talk about it publicly. And so if that bothers you, and I understand 
that not everyone is comfortable with that, um, then don't call me on the second date. And that's fine to each his own. But I just needed to be really upfront with where I knew God was calling me. And his answer, which was so incredible, he sat for a moment. He didn't answer flippantly or he's, he's a guy of very few words. So he doesn't, he's very thoughtful in his response. But he sat for a moment and then he said, if God is calling you to speak, who am I to tell you no? Hmm. And I just loved that willingness to say, in this family, in this marriage, which ended up, that's what it became, we are going to make going after the call of God a priority, regardless of the cost. At the time you met Matt, were you already feeling less unwanted, less unseen, less in love? Were you able to look in the mirror and not see who you once were, but to see who you were becoming? I think I still struggle with that, to be honest. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we all have things, right? Whether it's feeling uninvited or unwanted or, you know, doors shut in different jobs. And you think, well, maybe I wasn't good enough to stay in that position. And, you know, it's a process to start telling yourself it's not slammed doors in your faces. It's the, it's the gentle shutting of a door and a redirection um, you know, when we can re- when we can picture doors shutting that way, it's a lot easier than sometimes it, it can feel as if this big giant slam in your face. And, and it doesn't have to be. You can also picture a, a door gently closing and, and a redirection. And so I think still to this day, I struggle with stuff like that. Um, especially when, and I put this in the book, I, I ended up, my Matt and I now have four daughters. And I didn't want girls, <laughs> and I got four girls. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, man, I just didn't want them to turn out like me, you know. And I, I cried out to God when I got pregnant with my fourth, and she's now <laughs> uh, she's about to turn six. So this is that long ago. Um, I cried out to God. I said, man, I don't want girls. I don't want them to turn out like me. And I just thought of old me. That's all I saw. And the Lord said, um, if I like the woman you've become. If they turn out like you, it's going to be okay. Mm. And that was the first time I really started trying to see what God saw because all I saw was old me. I saw, you know, <laughs> I saw a girl who lived in the streets who'd been in and out of jail, who was a drug addict, who I never thought I was an addict until I found myself like smoking crack in the floorboard of a car in, in a parking garage. You know, for a while, it's, it's like anything when you're in denial, any addiction in denial. I thought, oh, it's cocaine. It's, you know, it's fine. It's just a party drug. Um, until I'd become so addicted that I that I'd found myself in these really lows. Yes. So that's the girl that I pictured. I didn't. I still have a hard time thinking. Me? Really? Are we? Are you? They sure they want to sign a book deal with me? <laughs> Do they know what I've done? Right. Is it going to offend everyone? I, I'm curious. You you uh, are conservative. You uh, are biblically trained. You speak at conferences all over the place. When people come up to you, and um, I'm assuming from time to time, you have a lot of folks sharing some judgment your way. H- how do you lovingly respond to people who who um, view your past life as a mistake that you chose? I mean, I mean, I don't know if I call myself conservative first. <laughs> I I love people. And I've, God loves people and I follow God. And that for me is like it. I, I, 
have so many friends and so many different faith traditions from progressive charismatic to moderate evangelical. And for me, I love everybody and I see everybody's perspective. So I just love people. I just want people to know they're, they're more than what they've been through and that they can go after anything they want and whatever's in their hearts. And I don't mean like go after anything you want. I'm meaning if you have a desire you have to value. paint. If all you think about is painting, then go for it. Mm. Just like shoot for the stars. My daughter, who's now 20, <clears throat> she was with me until we were the, the one I was trafficked with. Um, she's 20 and she's a, she's on a track scholarship at a division one school. She's a phenomenal athlete and she eats, breathes, sleeps track and field. That's what she does. And me, I don't ever think about running, <laughs> like ever. <laughs> so I think it's important that we focus on what it is we think a lot about, because that's really where you're gifted. And if you think about running and working out, then do it, go for it. And if you think about other things, that's kind of the barometer of where really your talent and gifts lie. And that's, I just want people to to know they're created for so much. When your four babies look up and they see their mama, whether they're 20 or they're six or they're somewhere in between, what do you hope they see now? I hope they see someone that wants to run after their dreams and to go for it and to not think, I want people to think, why not you? Everyone started somewhere. You know, anyone that's been successful in anything that they're passionate about, whether it's building cars to (laughs) anything, cooks, you know, whatever it is, everyone started somewhere. Why not you? It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter that you're from a small town. It doesn't matter that you've been all the past things you've been through. Everybody started somewhere. And I just want them to feel like they can, they can do anything with their lives. They want to be an astronaut, be an astronaut. They want to try to be, uh, you know, a, a, another woman president that we can try for. Maybe there'll be another one before they get older than try for it. Like whatever you want to do, there's nothing too big. Um, go for it. And yeah, that might mean quitting a job or going back to school a second or third time. It might mean taking out a business loan, whatever it is. I just want them to know that they can be anything. And I hope that they see that I've, sh- that I've tried to go after things that my heart longs for regardless of the cost. Um, that's all I can hope to be a role model in that. <laughs> well, you're living it right now and you're teaching it through part of your programming called the Elevate Academy. When I was able to escape, um, I decided to start a nonprofit after having a normal job for a while and then started a nonprofit. And at first, um, I just wanted survivors. I wanted to help survivors who lived in communities where services didn't exist just like me, I'd ran back to my small town and there was no drop-in center for trafficked women. There was, you know, there was barely things like that that existed in big cities, let alone small ones. And, um, I wanted survivors to know, I wanted them to figure out their now what? Yay. I ran. Now what? (laughs) What am I going to do with the rest of my life? The criminal record, huge gap in job history Mm. more PTSD than most combat vets. What do I do now? And And I wanted survivors to have a mentor to help them navigate that. And so I created an online school. Um, I was taking online classes at the time myself. And I just had this epiphany one morning. If I can get a master's online, I could mentor online. So I created the first online school for survivors of human trafficking in the world. We've now had 644 women 
um, in six countries and three like three different languages go through our program in five years. And it's awesome to see women who've been through so much start dreaming again, start to get excited about things, figuring out what they're good at. And for them to say, you know, did you know I'm a good photographer? Or did you know I'm actually really good with accounting? And like, I love that. I love seeing sparks of dreams start to come alive in people and then help them create an actual tangible plan to get there. How do you get a degree in accounting? How can we help you find scholarships? Does your school offer something for women coming out of violence that could give you a potential scholarship opportunities, right? Like helping them navigate how to figure out what makes their heart sing and then how to get there. Mm. Rebecca, when someone reads your book, when someone hears your story, when someone listens to a podcast like this, when someone meets you, uh, one-to-one and just has a conversation with you, what do you hope is different and better about them after they walk in the, in, away from that conversation? Such a good question. Um, I mean, it's all, it feels twofold, right? Whenever people hear the story, I want them to know that trafficking doesn't always look like that one movie that you saw that one time. That traffickers exploit the vulnerable, but it's diverse. Um, it really... It looks very different based on the culture and community in which you live, whether it's an illicit massage parlor or cantinas, online escorts, gritty street prostitution. There's actually 25 different ways that human trafficking looks. And so if we're only envisioning one way, we're going we're gonna to miss literally two dozen other forms of exploitation in your very own community. So I want people to start being a little bit open to thinking maybe there's more than one way that bad guys can exploit vulnerable young people to make money off of them, right? And, and to start thinking that that actually is possible and, is, and it is happening in every community in America. And so I want that, but I also want people to know that their past doesn't have to determine their future and that resilience is saying that all of, all of what you've been through can't have been for nothing mm. and to start searching and fighting to create something greater than before. Rebecca Bender. You've it, done that with your life too. <laughs> so it's awesome to be here and be even interviewed by you. You're the epitome of this. <laughs> uh, no longer. I've j- the, the O'Leary's face has been wiped off Mount Rushmore. Rebecca Bender's has surplanted it appropriately. So <laughs> Rebecca, on every show, we invite our wonderful guest, and I can think of no guest more wonderful than you, my friend. Seven questions that tether all of them together. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. And the very first question is, what is the best book you have ever read? T.D. Jake's God's Leading Lady radically changed my life. So I have not read it. Tell me why. He... I think that he really focuses on this concept of creating something greater than before and that your past can be used for goodness. And um, it's just a really inspiring, I mean, man, it's hard to pick one. I could name five that are really, really great. So that's that's the first one that comes to mind. It radically changed my life 17 years ago and um, it still is top on my list. What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as that little girl growing up in the Pacific Northwest picking tomatoes that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I, oh man, they're really tough, John. Wow. You, you, so I interviewed my, the very first podcast I did was, was with my mom. That was very strategic. I wanted her to be the foundational for the, uh, the entire podcast movement. 
And as I was asking her these seven questions, she was giving me these death looks like, John, you did not tell me there was a quiz at the end of this test, right? So uh, (laughs) you're not the first one to go through these questions or give me that death look. And I I hear you loud and clear. But what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think that innocence, that trust, I wish that. I walked into situations a lot more expecting the good mm. instead of always a little bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this room real quick before I do anything. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that is a good thing. I don't know. I think that's such an awesome answer and so honest. If your home caught fire, Rebecca, and all living things, your husband, your girls, your animals, everybody's out. And you have an opportunity to run back into that home and grab one item. What's the one item you would grab? I'd probably grab my Bible. I mean, I know that sounds really cliche and cheesy and hear me out. I've had the same Bible since I got saved 17 years ago. It has every note and every promise that God has ever given me, marked, highlighted, Mm. dated. And it's such a source of strength when I'm feeling down and discouraged and maybe I dreamed wrong. Maybe, maybe this, this stuff ain't going to happen the way I thought it was. And being able to go back to the promise and circle it and look, nope, December, 2003, I was promised this. I have to anchor myself to that. I I would hate to lose those. My friends, with Rebecca's permission, we're going to have her, if she's willing, take a picture of that Bible and we'll post it in the show notes along with editions of her book, that will be given away. So uh, check out the show notes. You will love that picture. You'll certainly love her book. The question that I'm going to follow with now is if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a picture perfect day and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? Other than you, of course, right? Oh man, I'm in, I'm in Oregon from time to time. I was there last <laughs> week. So that we can make that one happen. Oh. Well, we don't really have beaches here, but we could go to the coast. We'll go to the coast. <laughs> I've all, actually, I've always, I've always wanted to see the coast of Oregon, so I, I will meet you there. But in the meantime, before you sit with John O'Leary on that bench, who's one person that you would love to visit with? Martin Luther King. Mm. Martin Luther King Jr. What, what's your fir- just? <laughs> what's your first question for Martin Luther King Jr.? Just tell me how you got through the pressure. How'd you get through really radically trying to change a nation and, and the attacks and the hate and how do you hold on to hope when it feels like such this monumental, uh, cultural shift, like how'd you do it? How'd you start? How'd you get through it? How'd you hold (laughs) on to all of it? I mean, I would love to change the way America sees sex for sale in our country Human trafficking is not just a girl's issue. The number one buyer of sex in the world is American men. How are we, how are we raising our sons and daughters to be so desensitized mm. to hypersexuality? It's just normal nowadays. You know, watching porn on a smartphone is what every 12 and 13-year-old shows each other in school. It, it's, it's becoming like we really need to take a minute and start figuring out what we're doing. Because this is going to get worse if we're not all starting to do something. And so I think it can be done, right? We changed the way people saw smoking in this nation. Um, 
we we can do this too. We can really set set the stage to make a difference in the lives of the next generation. Um, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s is the epitome of mm. that. So I, I have so many questions. <laughs> Man, that is such an awesome answer. And I'm so glad you brought up that, yes, this happened to you. It happens to tens of thousands of girls. And who are they serving? Who are these guys taking the elevator ride up and walking into that hotel room and buying and abusing? And uh, where are they coming from? What led to it? And what can we yep. do together to begin redeeming this? So it's it's a beautiful yeah. take. Rebecca, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? You're in the midst of the storm. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Well, I'd probably say two things. One, I'd be like, run now. You can do it. <laughs> I know it feels scary. Grab, grab your baby and go. Like, run now. But if I couldn't, <laughs> then I'd tell her it's going to be okay. Like, you're going to be okay. Deshay, your daughter, she's going to be okay. Like, you're going to get through this, and you're going to help people. But grab her and run now. <laughs> you can still you can still help people. You don't have to live through the six years. You can still only live through one and still help people. Mm. So I guess that's twofold. Run now and, and or it's going to be okay. You're going to turn out okay. You're going to get through this. Jimmy V, a legendary coach and TV personality, said in one of his final addresses, if every day you laugh, you cry, and you learn, man, that's a heck of a day. And on this mm -hmm. podcast, several times I've been laughing. Several times I've quietly been wiping water from my eyes for some reason, and I'm learning an awful lot. And it's going to lead us to the seventh and final question, which is, it has been said, Rebecca Bender, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I would sum it up in one sentence, which is actually the sentence that my my daughter wrote for an English assignment. And she put on a post-it and she had on her wall for many, many years. And it says, against all odds, I will shine. <laughs> Against all odds, Rebecca Bender has indeed shined. This is a woman who once felt she was unwanted, unseen, unloved, and now is teaching other women, other men, other friends, other strangers, and now our live-inspired audience that they are wanted, that you are seen, that you are loved, and that your best days remain in front of you. She is the author of the book, In Pursuit of Love. Rebecca Bender, I want to thank you for spending part of your day with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been incredible. It has been incredible. You are a gift. Thank you for shining. Your daughter was right. My friends, that is Rebecca Bender. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Before you get on with your day today, I want to celebrate with you an incredible year that 2020 is going to be. I've whispered about it on social media. If you've heard me recently speak at a live speaking event, I've made a few mentions to it there, and I've even shared a little bit of it on a Monday moment back in December. Well, my newest book, In Awe, hits bookshelves in May 2020. As you know, I wrote this book with my four kids in mind. These little ones have so much joy for the day and so much optimism for life. They have inspired me to recapture and harness 
my childlike senses of wonder in order to become more engaged, more successful, and more fulfilled in life. And in this world of negative news cycles, loneliness as an epidemic, and the chronic struggle of doing more and more and more with less and less and less, my new book, In Awe, will provide you the tools to help rediscover the childlike qualities of wonder, of curiosity, of openness, of belonging, and of freedom that will free you that will permit you to live life more fully, more playfully, and more joyfully. As we dive into this new year, there is no better time than now to pre-order a copy of In Awe. It will remind you of what we once so freely enjoyed and how returning to it will positively transform our communities, our organizations, and our families. My friends, for a limited time, I'm including an interactive in-awe playbook with all pre-orders. This in-awe playbook will provide you hours of activities, giving you the opportunity to start implementing some of the lessons taught in the book as you joyfully await its arrival in May of 2020. So my friends, I want you today to visit me at readinawe.com and pre-order your copy of the book. I believe it's the kind of book that's going to begin a movement reminding us that life is not always easy, but it is good, and the best is yet to come. So again, visit me, readinawe.com. My friends, today is your day. Live inspired.